Hi, guys. <laughs> you know... <laughs> this is the fourth and a half, I think, time? I'm trying to remember. I played it through, then I tried to play it through, then I played it through. I think it's actually the third and a half time I've played through this game. It's the third and a half or fourth and a half. I've kind of lost track. I haven't played through it many times. And I swear every time I play through it, my opinion gets more distended. The good is better and the bad is worse, basically. <sighs> Let's go ahead and hammer this right off the bat. One of the things that I hear most often is that Mass Effect 3's ending is awful. It was. It was terrible. It was one of the worst video game endings I'd seen in recent memory. The extended cut helped, but the original ending truly was just, just terrible. Here's the catch, though. One of the things that I heard most commonly said back in the day, including by some blue-haired idiot... Actually, I didn't have blue hair at the time. Even I said that the game was a great game until the ending. And I was wrong. And I, ever since replaying this, that is to say the second time, which I didn't even finish it because the flaws really started to show themselves to me, and playing it through for the lore run, which, oh my god, it... It becomes obvious to me that this game is a very, very flawed game, which by coincidence happens to have several awesome sections in it. This is, I think, one of the biggest problems with Mass Effect 3 right here. Its quality is all over the place. There is excellent writing and atrocious writing. There, is a there are actual points in this game that literally contradict themselves. There are portions where characters act completely in character, reach fulfilling character arcs, and then there's portions where they don't. This, the, the, even the mission design varies substantially in terms of overall quality, and it's just all over the place. And that is the biggest problem with Mass Effect 3, in my opinion. It's all over the place. It is good and bad, and a lot of in-between. So having said all that... As a quick aside, I'm actually really looking forward to doing a proper review of this game, which I've never done up till, till me recording this. So, we'll see if that gets funded for the coming year for a... I guess that would be an in-depth classic at that point. But, you know, whatever, a review run. Let's talk about some of the things they did right, which is almost entirely on the gameplay axis of things. So the first thing they did was they made it so that the enemy actually has proper AI and has the ability to do something other than shoot, hide, and advance. Now the enemy has certain specific actions and interactions they can do, depending on where you are or what kind of terrain you're behind or trying to remove cover or trying to establish new cover, just new variances that help the AI to be substantially better. They also added a melee option, a regular melee option for everyone, which varied a little bit depending on what you were, which is very cool and also helps a lot to add to some of the strategy, especially if you're running out of ammo. They added rolling, which is pretty useful, especially because you can now roll despite being in or out of cover. They also made it so that you get grenades again, first time since the first game, and grenades are relatively useful. They're kind of kit-specific. Speaking of kit-specific, though, this is the first Mass Effect game to have actual builds. As I described back in Mass Effect 1, there's no builds, there's just alternate leveling, and you can eventually max out whatever you want. In this game, there's, they actually made it so... So in Mass Effect 2, you had like a talent tree. It's the, that's the wrong word, but whatever. And when you got to the end of it, you could pick one, or, one of two things. In Mass Effect 3, you can go through it, and at multiple intervals, you can pick one of two things. And in so doing, have a substantially different 
build. So for the first time in the Mass Effect franchise, we actually legitimately have the ability to design and customize our playstyle, which is cool. In fact, we can do so even more than that, because the other thing they added was the weight system. Hear me out. So rather than class-specific equipment limitations on guns, everyone can equip anything. So you can be a biotic with an anti-materials rifle if you really want to. The catch is every equipment has a weight associated with it. Though, basically, the more weight you have, the longer your cooldowns are. The less weight you have, the less your cooldowns are. This also is, this system is awesome. It's, it's the first time I ever really got into playing anything other than a soldier, because all of a sudden the mix and matching and, and the weight balance variance thing meant that I was, there was a lot of builds I could make work. My personal favorite is actually a straight vanguard who has no weapons whatsoever and relies entirely on meleeing everything. But it's a lot of fun and it's very difficult to do and because you are incredibly glass cannony. In fact, the only way for the build to even function is to kill constantly, which refills your barriers. Otherwise, you'll just fall apart in seconds. Very fun, though. Which, of course, leads me rather naturally into the fact that they also had... Uh... What? Oh, I'm sorry. I was looking at my notes like, what the heck does that say? This leads to the four-player co-op mode that they added to the game, which is actually really fun. See, some people have said, oh, it's just a swarm mode. Eh, no. See, a swarm mode is when you stand here and then a wave of enemies spawn and then you kill them. What Mass Effect 3 did was they have... Uh, Increasing difficulty, obviously, but a finite point, and, this is important, it's objective-based. So, in other words, rather than being a rander, rather, you know, bog-standard kill enemies thing, instead it actually turns into kind of a left-for-dead thing. I've said for years that objective-based multiplayer co-op is far more interesting than kill-enemy objective, or kill-enemy-based multiplayer co-op. So it was a lot of fun, and me and Pax played a ton of it. Even when I did the lore run five or six years ago, whenever it was, this God, it's been that long. Uh, we, we actually did some of that, because we could do it at the time. I'm not even sure we could do it now, just to enjoy it, because it was very fun. And, of course, there were also a lot of classes, which they only added more to over time. So all of a sudden, that whole even in the, the single-player game, you have lots of build possibilities. Now you have tons of build possibilities. And especially lots of team build possibilities. All of this was a huge plus and made the game very enjoyable to play. So for all of its many flaws, let me say that I think this is the best gameplay we've had in the trilogy. And I stand by that statement firmly, especially after this playthrough. Now, when I say gameplay, I sh obviously I am speaking of gameplay, but the problem is gameplay also cover things like level design, or flow of gameplay, or interface, all of which are pretty crap in this game. Um, you like the quest log in this game? If you can call it that? The very method by which you procure quests is frankly awful. So rather than any of the other me methods we've had, so in Mass Effect 1 we had you know the, the Hackett missions and the random side missions, which were just kind of whatever. In Mass Effect 2, all of the side missions were basically main missions. And in Mass Effect 3, you just hear people randomly talking, and then as they're talking, it's like, and it's like a pop-up. You can now go do this thing at this place. And then you go do it, and you come back, and then they're like, oh, hey, thanks for the thing. That's it. It's it's dumb. It's boring and it's terrible. It's dumb. It is awful game design, which is so strange given the excellent game design I just mentioned. You see what I mean? This game is so just all over the place.
Anyways, let's move forward. So first we meet boobs. No, okay, I'm sorry. I had to make that joke. It's not as bad as Dragon Age 2, but it actually kind of irritates me how um, off the women look in this game. I mean, Edie is probably the most obvious example, but at least that one makes a bit of sense. What the heck happened to Ashley? Fun fact, and I know I've said this before, the first time Ashley showed up in the game, I didn't recognize her until she started talking. I saw a random woman, and I literally couldn't tell that was Ashley until she was like, Oh, yeah, command. What? I guess you've been hitting the cybernetic enhancements, too. Shepard has as well, consequently. I. Moving on. Moving on. So we're on Earth. Good music. I mean, there's actually pretty decent music in the game in general. Um, so let's see, where to begin? Do I start with the bad graphics? Which, I know some people have actually come after me for pointing out the bad graphics. I'm trying to think how to phrase this. The the bad graphics of the fleeing GIFs, or GIFs if you prefer, of the people fleeing from Earth, it's just indicative one of the things I point out constantly is how much I appreciate attention to detail. And I do. Especially when it's not necessary. That's the kind of thing that helps flesh out a work for me. Helps to elevate it above and beyond other works. It's one of the things that I love about games like Twilight Princess or God of War 4. You know, it just, just the severe attention to detail I appreciate tremendously. This game is the exact opposite of that. There is no attention to detail in this game at all. And the random little fleeing graphics, bad just terrible graphics is an excellent example of that. And that's the point. It's not just the bad graphics itself, which is already bad. It's the fact that it is indicative of how much this game was thrown together. Even Dragon Age 2 didn't really have this problem. Although Dragon Age 2 had another problem with the repeating dungeons, but you get the idea. Moving on. So it's like, okay, we need to flee. Okay, okay. Uh, so Earth is being invaded by the Reapers. Okay, that makes sense. What have we been doing to prepare for it? Nothing. We knew they were coming, and apparently people believed, at least enough people believed us, but we're just kind of chilling. Okay. So what do we do now that the Reapers are here? Well, we fight or we die. I've used that quote to make fun of it for years. Shepard has never exactly been an intelligent character, but she at least was a character in Mass Effect 1 and 2. In 3, she is a dumb brick. She is actively redunculously stupid. And in fact, there are two examples of that in the first thing on Earth. The first is this, the, the scene I just mentioned. The second is when she gets really pissed off at Anderson for insisting she leaves Earth. Okay, Shepard has spent the better part of her latest career trying to unify people and get a squad together in order to face a greater threat. I would like to think she's smart enough to acknowledge the obvious duh factor of why she should go... I keep saying she, but you know what I mean. Why she should go out and get help rather than just sit here and die like a moron. But no, she's all pissed about it. <laughs> right. There's also this kid she sees who dies. No, no, no drama, no build-up, just, hey... Giving a, trying to give a personal touch on the tragedy and failing to do so miserably. Okay, so then we go to Mars. <clears throat> and then Mars is stupid. It's actually the tutorial, which is funny, because we, if you're paying attention, we just had a tutorial. Anderson literally telling us what to do, as if you've never played this game before. 
This leads me to one of my biggest flaws of this game overall. A lot of the flaws are site-specific. Like I said, it's good and it's bad. But if you zoom the camera out, one of the biggest flaws for me is that it was designed too much for new players. Now, I've talked about this concept for years, and I've talked about it with regards to many other franchises too, but let me make this point very clear. There's nothing wrong with Final Fantasy III wanting to appeal to new players. It has nothing to do with the previous two games. There's nothing to do wrong with Star Trek The Next Generation wanting to appeal to new viewers, because it has extremely little to do with the previous franchise. There's nothing wrong with... you get the general point, right? Let me use a direct example. There's nothing wrong with Mega Man 7 wanting to be appealing to new players to the Mega Man franchise, because while the Mega Man games do have background continuity, they are not string continuity. Mega Man 7 is not part 7 of 7. Mass Effect 3 is part 3 of 3. It is the worst possible place. To, it's like literally trying to design Lord of the Rings Return of the King for people who haven't seen the previous two movies. You don't do that with a cohesive string continuity storyline which is concluding. You don't do that in general, if I'm being blunt. It may be with the second part. Maybe. It depends on the circumstances. But you definitely don't do that with the conclusion. Which brings me to Vega. Oh, Vega. Or should I say Sanders? <laughs> Some of you will get that. Vega! <laughs> Just give me a moment. Hmm. Sorry, I'm slouching a bit more than usual. Is it obvious that this is just wearing me down, just talking about this? Ugh. In Mass Effect 3, Vega is designed to be someone who doesn't know the politics or the people or anything, really, so that he can be a bit of a viewpoint character, so that things can be explained to him. This leads to a lot of really awkward, dumb exposition where we are told things we already know because we've played the past two games. Now, this made me very negatively biased against Vega. I will admit, on replete playthroughs, that's gotten better. First of all, he's actually... Freddie Prince Jr. is actually a better voice actor than I originally gave him credit for. Second of all, Vega himself is actually fine. He's a grunt, but in, like, that classic kind of a way. I, I've known people like him in real life, and I've gotten along with people like him in real life. Um, and I have to admit, having, having processed this a little bit better, it's like, yeah, okay, I kind of get it. Um... Not someone I would be friends with, but someone I could at least get along with. And he does have a little bit more going on for him than just, you know, being the big dumb guy. Although I swear to this day, and I've never been able to prove this, that he's actually sitting on a Krogan skeleton. In the in the graphics rendering term, I feel like the, the core thing which determines his animations is actually Krogan. It would make sense because he looks kind of weird and freaky, and so does everyone in this game, actually. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. Anyways, let's move on. So we go to Mars, as I mentioned. We get the tutorial again, as I mentioned. Cerberus are now the bad guys. Cool. Wait, what? So Cerberus are the bad guys. While that makes a degree of sense, it has always irritated me. Especially since, given that this is the conclusion, it would make the most sense for the Cerberus, Cerberus's position in the story to be variant depending on your choices, especially in 2. Nope. They're the villains. I mentioned how in Mass Effect 1 we always fight the Geth, and in 2 we fight the, the groups of uh, mercenaries. In 3 we fight Cerberus and Reaper minions. Uh, sorry for being redundant. This has irritated me for um, ever. Even the first playthrough this irritated me. Why is Cerberus suddenly at the point of being an intergalactic power militarily? 
whatever. Let's let's just move on. We've talked about this to death. I, by the way, that reminds me. I have nothing new to add to this rumination. Oh, don't mistake me. I, I imagine this will be a, a remake of the previous rumination, which was done without notes and without replaying it recently and all that problems. But uh, that was done years and years ago when I wasn't even doing this for a job. I was just doing this for fun. But, uh, yeah, I don't have anything new to add after the lore run, if you happen to see that. So forgive me for repeating myself. Then again, the lore run's like 40 hours long or something, so I guess this is a good way to truncate that. Speaking of which, I suppose I should talk about this in brief. Cerberus uh, is completely misused in the narrative and in the gameplay. In gameplay, they're stormtroopers. They're, they're geth. They're random enemies that have no purpose. In terms of story, they're the ones who turn traitor, basically. They're the ones who are, you know, indoctrinated and, as a consequence, are serving the Reaper cause. Okay, sure. I think that is a mistake in both takes. I've already said why for the story thing, but in gameplay terminology, it just means we have something to fight other than abominations, which, frankly, are not only more terrifying and horrible, but also more interesting to fight, since there's more variety to them. Although it's probably worth noting that the very fact that Reaper abominations exist is itself kind of strange and unusual. I, I mean, when you're here to kill lots and lots and lots of people, um, why do you need troops when you have spaceships with giant death beams? I'm, I'm just curious. Whatever. Moving on. I, I point this out, though, to point out that the game t tries to sh show it as if the war against the Reapers is against their soldiers, their troops, not against the ships, which are the actual Reapers which we're actually fighting against. We're winning this battle against their disposable minions. Okay. I mentioned inconsistency. One of the biggest inconsistencies in the story is the Reapers themselves. The Reapers have no real voice with only one brief exception, and I'm not talking about the kid at the end. So for the most part, the Reapers are just kind of there and don't really have anything to do with anything. They're just in the background killing things randomly. Um, and uh, they, in the narrative, sometimes they are portrayed as the Borg, to put it into such terminology. There is no hope. We cannot stop them. They overwhelm us completely. They are super strong and super advanced, and they're made of unobtipigilium, and they cannot be, they, they, they wash and they wax, and it's, they slice and they dice. There's no stopping them. This is what uh, Hackett, Admiral Hackett, says constantly and leads to the joke that I've made fun of to this very day. We can't beat them conventionally, which is a damned lie. So I point that out. Because that's part of the main thrust of the narrative. You'll notice we are not gathering people to try and fight the Reapers. This is not us attempting to defeat the enemy that we have a chance to defeat. This is in total contrast to the other half of the narrative. So let's look at these two halves really quick here. So on the one hand, we have, we can't def do anything. We cannot defeat the Reapers. They are super powerful. The only hope we have is a weapon we've never heard of before, which we know very little about, but we know how to build which will save us from the Reapers. It's the frickin' definition of a deus ex machina, or a Hail Mary pass. Okay, that's stupid. Uh, those kind of stories are stupid in general, and it takes a very careful crafting to take that stupid premise and make something good of it, which this game does not do. 
It also flies in the face of the previous two games and the other half of the plot, which, speaking of which, here's the other half of the plot, which talks about how, um, and is this whole buildup about how we, how we interrupted the cycle early. You know, obviously the Protheans were able to stop the Citadel from sending out its thing, so they didn't, so the cycle, which was supposed to start like however many hundreds of years ago, didn't. And then we actually managed to find out about the Reapers. And remember, one of the big plot points in 1 and 2 was learning about the Reapers' existence, learning how they are to be able to combat them. Because one of the main points is once you know an enemy exists, you can start to figure out how to combat them. Perfect. And so that's part of the second half of the narrative. This is especially brought up when it comes to Javik and when he actually enters the narrative. Because he starts talking about, you know, you, you didn't heed it. Yes, but we stopped it early. And we were able to use your plans and your technology, and we've been moving forward with this thing. And the second part of the narrative talks about how every now and again we're actually beating the Reapers. Conventionally. No, I'm serious. If you actually, especially if you read the little data reports or whatever, or listen to some of the people chatting. This is what we ha have when we have a writing team, and some people are writing one thing, and other people are writing another thing, and they're not checking notes. This isn't conjecture at this point. We know this is what happened with Mass Effect 3. It's really obvious. It's a shame, because the second half of the team does some damn good work. There's a nice little bit where you hear a Volus chatting on the Citadel, and if you listen to the whole conversation, he reveals that the galactic economy is going to completely self-destruct in the wake of the war, because they have no precedent for this. That makes sense. To use a real-life parallel, if World War II... <sighs> In real life, World War II completely destroyed the economy of most of the world, with one big exception, the United States. Now, the United States economy wasn't, it was, was substantially impacted by World War II, but it was not destroyed. In fact, if anything, it was invigorated. Because all of a sudden, we were just having this massive export, and all of a sudden, everyone in the world owed us a ton of money. This completely revitalized our economy and helped the rest of the economies of the world sustain themselves in the post-war situation. Now that's important because in Mass Effect 3, there's no United States. So everyone's economy is being destroyed by this kind of consistent large-scale warfare. And that actually makes sense. That's logical. That's, that gets across the scale and scope of what's going on. It's brilliant. You know what doesn't? The fact that we leave Earth... And we find out that people are dying by the millions per day. Millions, actually, it's, it's like millions per hour, I think. I forget. They give numbers. They give actual numbers. I forget what they are right now. I should have written them down. And by how many people are dying en masse, like every hour. And yet, even though we leave Earth at the beginning of the game, when we get back there at the end, there's still an Earth there, which still has a resistance force, which is still fighting the Reapers. Somehow. Sure. Keep in mind, Earth was one of the first places hit, too. So that's, that's a thing. Anyways, I should also point out that despite the fact that one of the big Reaper's big strategies is to divide and conquer, they just decide to attack everywhere equally. In case I didn't get that across, let me say that again. The Reapers invade every major area of the galaxy simultaneously. They do not have the numbers for that. That's, that's functionally impossible. The galaxy is kind of a big place, and they assign way more than one Reaper per planet, which maybe might make that make sense. Yeah, that's, you, you can see the differences between these two, but whatever.
at Mars, uh, Edie gets her new sexy body with giant boobs, because, I mean, what else are you going to have? Uh, and we also have, uh, this is when we find the first inferences of what's going to be a character arc that never goes anywhere, which is control versus destroy. There's the, the beginnings of a story there, but they never examine it. it it's, I, I just told you everything the game does about it. Control versus destroy. Now, on the base level, you can think, well, that's kind of Revan versus Malik, right? But no, this is a little bit different. We're on the back foot here. We're reeling. And the idea of using our enemy's weapons against them makes sense if we can do it and get away with it. In fact, it would actually make tons of sense if indoctrination didn't exist, which, huh, that's the like the 50th time that's come up, actually. I'm sorry, let's move forward. So then we see Liara. Now, I want to talk about Liara briefly. Because my shepherd romanced Liara. Zaydenra was in love with Liara. Okay. So then Liara shows up, and I'm just sitting here waiting for there to be some acknowledgement of that. Like there was in 2. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And I'm waiting. What they did was basically the romance is erased. As if you were never together. And if you decide to romance Liara, you're effectively doing it for the first time. And that's how it's written and portrayed. You think that's bad. That's true basically across the board. Unless you happen to romance Jacob, in which case, screw you! <laughs> God! I feel so bad for the Jacob romancers. That's how I know some people liked Jacob, because there were those people in when Mass Effect 3 came out which were like, what the hell? So we get to the Citadel. I already mentioned the bad quest design and the bad log. We see the dream sequences, which are stupid. Um... I already mentioned the inconsistent writing. We go to Palavin. We have one of the better lines of the entire trilogy. You know, cold calculus. I've been using that phrase ever since I heard it. Cold calculus. Um, there's some good stuff with Edie and Joker. You'll notice I'm not talking about characters, because this isn't a character piece. It really isn't. Um, so there's some, there is some good stuff, however, with Edie and Joker. The two kind of grow together and end up having romantic feelings for each other, which is actually kind of awesome, in my opinion. It, in many ways, is probably one of the strongest points of the uh, AI organic coexistence subplot. And I have to call it a subplot, even though it's supposed to be the main plot that exists in this game. So that's awesome. It's also something that directly ties into Tali's story, which I'll get to in a second, uh, because she's too busy slowly getting connected to Garrus, which about frickin' time. Come on. So then we see Javik. We get some, this is one of the better parts of Mass Effect 3, we get a direct insight into what it was like the last cycle. And we find out that the Reapers spent centuries fighting last time. And that it was this long, slow slog, and only succeeded because the ones they took over, and the ones that they were using to indoctrinate, and they had to use tactics and strategy because they were so weak, because there were so few of them, and... Inconsistent writing, it's a thing in this game. But it's good stuff. All the Javik stuff is good stuff in the background. I also admit, Javik's kind of a dick. But as weird as this may sound, I have come to appreciate him in storytelling. First of all, with very careful and patient effort, you can effectively turn him into a more tolerable person. He even mentions, uh, in the Citadel DLC, he mentions uh, something which is kind of awesome, where he, instead of referring to everyone as primitives, he calls them the young is a nice little touch. But more to the point, part of why I like Javik is because he's actually pretty valid in his approach and, and mentality. The thing is, he's also incredibly wrong. He has this wonderful quote. I only wrote down a bit of it. 
Stand amongst the ashes of trillions of dead and ask the ghosts what your honor matters. Their silence is your answer. Now, that makes perfect sense and is absolutely right. And you might think, well, then clearly pragmatism is the only thing that matters. After all, in extreme circumstances, the rules change, right? See, the catch is, though, he's also wrong because he is applying that universally. The problem with the Protheans was they were a conquering power who dominated the galaxy. They were the power in the galaxy. That's not true anymore. That's actually, it's actually deliberately not true, specifically because of a lot of what's happened in this cycle, which has been setting up this cycle to be different than previous cycles. Rather than one universal power that can be broken down from the top down, we have many powers which can be united. And because of the fact that they come from different wakes or interests or mindsets and have different resources and mentalities and structures, well, it's, it's the old saying, right? If you have a temple built on 15 pillars, it's more stable than one built on one, right? That's the concept here. And so even though honor might not be a big deal, you know what it is? Diplomacy, negotiation, coordination, cooperation, teamwork, the core thing about Mass Effect, the team working together to accomplish what the one could not. And so Javik is wrong as well as he is right. And slowly getting him to see this and slowly getting everyone else to interact with him on this matter is part of his interaction with the crew. As long as you buy the DLC, you did buy the DLC, right? Day one DLC, because screw you if you didn't. He just shows up and then goes over there and says, hey, 15 bucks? Anyways, um, I do also want to mention, though, the variance of the cycle thing is part of the second storytelling element. Because, as we find out, the Protheans did a lot of stuff to make sure that this cycle was different than the last one. Uh, helping to uh, uplift and assist multiple races in, in getting ready for the next cycle. Leaving the troops who were going to take over for the next cycle. And, of course, the fact that they left an AI, or excuse me, a VI, specifically for the Asari. And this is something that's actually been theorized a lot prior to this game coming out, that the Asari are so dominant on the galactic stage because they had a head up. Well, or had a, had a hand up. What's the phrase? They were ahead of the game. They had a, a leg up? The point being, if you remember, I mentioned a parallel to a 4X game, how humanity is starting 40 turns later. Well, the Asari has started 10 turns before that. They're not super dominant. But they do have the edge, and there's a reason they have been dominating galactic politics and culture and society and military for the entirety of this current cycle. It's because they did have the advantage, and they did get there first, and they did spread out first, and blah, 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 blah. It's interesting to think about, especially given how few actually know about that. And then Thessia falls. You'll notice I haven't talked about Sirkesh or Tichanka. Uh, or the Citadel mission, or Rannoch yet. I'm talking about this here, though, because it sucks. <laughs> see, you can see once again how it's so weird, because that revelation, oh, that makes so much sense. And, you know, the, the character stuff of Javik, oh, that's awesome. And then we encounter Kai Lang, who is straight-up cheating, and is just a bad boss. I've talked about this before. In brief, he is the definition of a cheating enemy encounter. You can literally get him down to one health, and then he'll be like, I'm going to re restore. And so a, a helicopter comes out, and it's like, I'm going to shoot you so he can restore. But you can still kill him, or rather you could if the game lets you, but it doesn't. He just sits there at one health, and he'll just keep regenerating 
until, you know, finally you, you can't shoot at him anymore because there's a helicopter shooting at you, and you finally go duck, and then he'll regen. He's like, okay, now I can fight you. He straight up cheats, and then he tr- ch- then the game cheat treats it as though the cheating was just him being so much better than you. Kai Lang is one of the worst parts of this entire game. He has, I think, like five lines of dialogue in the entire thing, not counting the email he sends to you. He has no real character or motivation, and he just wins every time he shows up. I, I think that's basically everything wrong that they could have done with him. They, also, they try to build him up as if he's some kind of anti-shepherd. They fail miserably. You know who's an anti-shepherd? Saren. Arguably the elusive man, who's still good in most of this game. But no. He's just a nobody who cheats, who is cheap, and who gets his ass handed to him by Thane. Ah, poor Thane. I suppose I'll talk about the Citadel thing since I'm talking about it here. But really, the only thing I have to say about that is Thane is awesome. Um, whoever human is alive, uh, Miss uh, Mr. Alenko or Mrs. Williams, they are kind of awesome in this one. Although there's some variances on that, and that depends on your choices. Props to that. And Kyling is awful. I already talked about that. And Udina is a traitor. That's weird. In the game, they actually posit the idea that he was indoctrinated, which at this point is just starting to become the magic excuse for people acting stupid. Because for all of Udina's traits in 1 and 2, I can't see him doing this. He is certainly someone who wants humanity to have, you know, equal stay at the table, right? So I could see him believing in the ideology of Cerberus, but not this, not going in this direction. If anything, I think he would be more inclined not to do this, since he would understand just how important this is. But the game posits it as though he's so worried because his world's under attack, therefore everyone needs to go after his world right now, which is stupid on every level. I mean, panic turns people dumb, but I, I just can't picture this. The best explanation I've been able to come up with, which doesn't involve mind control is that he really was truly out of his mind panicked. And I don't quite buy that. Hmm. Oh yeah, and the game also doesn't support that at all while we're on the subject. (sighs) Let's talk about some good stuff. So, let's talk about Tachanka. This... uh, Tachanka, so there's, there's like a, this two-step thing. You go to Sirkesh and then Tachanka, and then you go to the Geth, uh, Geth Dreadnought or whatever, and then you go to Rannoch. Both of those are actually just the two missions, the one and then the other. And this is a good time to mention something. Actually, before I talk about that, before, before I lose my train of thought, I noticed that the Paragon options are more good and the Renegade options are more evil in this game. This is funny because one of the biggest complaints about the game is that there's a lot less less dialogue options in general. Usually, good guy, bad guy, and that's it. Except being portrayed as Paragon Renegade. Which just shows how dumbed down the overall uh, nuance of the character is in this game. Which contributes to why Shepard is such a brick in this game. In short, it's the same general problem the Mass Effect series has always had. Just worse. But I wanted to talk about good things. Sir Kesh is not a good thing. It's a mission in which the Cerberus somehow magically is able to not only find the super-secret Solarian installation, but also infiltrate it with tons and tons of hardware. So you have to fight to, to, to keep Eve alive. But it's also good, because we get to see Rex, and Rex gets to interact with Garrus and Liara, 
And Eve gets introduced, and she's actually pretty awesome right off the bat. And that leads immediately to the Tachanka mission, which... <sighs> Honestly, still gets me teary-eyed. Oh, wow, it's actually hitting me. It's actually hitting me. Even to this day, it hits me. Because the Tuchanka mission is really well designed. Not just because it, if it, everything goes right, which is good in its own right. No. What's really awesome about this mission is it's one of the only missions, in fact, it is one of two, that really acknowledge the consequences of your choices in the previous games. There are multiple ways both Tuchanka and Rannoch can go in this game, and it's awesome. That is exactly what should be happening in the conclusion of an epic trilogy of video games that bake themselves on choices. I mean, you can uh, you can allow them to cure the genophage. It's a lie. You know, you could lie about it. You can prevent them from curing the genophage and have to kill several other people, including Morden. There's this really horrible renegade choice renegade choice, where you shoot Morden, and you just look at the gun disgusted at what you've done. <sighs> yeah. Um, and of course, there's this really epic big boss fight against uh, a, uh, a destroyer, I believe, a reaper destroyer, which is defeated with a thresher maw. <laughs> Summon bigger fish. But it's still an awesome fight, and still an awesome encounter. Fun to do. But if you do everything a certain way, what happens is you can actually cure the genophage. And Morden goes up to do it, and he's humming to himself as he does it. He actually dies in the middle of a, of a line of singing. And of course, he has to be the one to go up. Someone else would get it wrong. Rex is awesome if you do the full golden route, if you get everything right, if you did everything right in all three games. He is your bro. Shepard is going to mean hero in Krogan from now on. And they're thinking about naming their child. And it's just, it's this really powerful, very well done, awesome sequence that narratively and gameplay concludes multiple arcs wonderfully. Which leads me to Rannoch. First, you go to the Geth Consensus, after all, which is a wonderful side quest. Gives us in-depth information on exactly what happened to the Geth back in the day. Um, if you decide, if for whatever reason Legion is not alive for this section, first of all, you can't get the golden ending. But second of all, it changes it. Just like with Tachanka, things can go many different flavors of bad here. And it's actually very possible that what will end up happening, there's only two big flavors of bad, but there's still several ways that this slices until you get to the two big bads. One of them is all the Geth are wiped out, and the other is all of the Quarians are wiped out. I'm, not, I'm talking full genocide here. If the Quarians are wiped out, Tali commits suicide. If the Geth are wiped out, well, I mean, you could think of how well that goes. And nobody's happy with either option. And it's wonderfully portrayed and terrifyingly horrible. There's this great bit where you have an interrupt to save Tali and you fail. She dies. I mean, do you blame her? <laughs> her entire species just got wiped out. Yeah, yeah, that's a little hard to take. But it's, it's, there's good missions. We fight another destroyer. I just realized the two times, two or three, two out of three times we fight a destroyer is during the really good missions. And we, we destroy it. This time, rather than with, uh, with a Thresher mod, this time with orbital weapons, which actually works and is generally awesome. It's actually a really cool se sequence. And, you know, that leads to some fun stuff. 
And, of course, that leads to the Rannoch conclusion. If you do everything right, well, you convince the Geth that it is possible to coexist, and Legion then convinces the Geth that it's possible to coexist. And if you do everything right on the other side, and you really do have to do everything right, mostly in the second game as well as in the third game, to line this up, which is part of why I'm okay with it. I've said before, I like a third option if you have to earn it. If you have to work for getting the golden route, I'm okay with it. And that's exactly what happens in both Tuchanka and in Rannoch. And you'll notice neither happens without sacrifice. No matter what we do, we lose Morden and we lose Legion. But those sacrifices are not in vain, assuming we do it properly. Legion disseminates himself and his pieces into the rest of the Geth consciousness. And, uh... <laughs> he also calls himself I for basically the only time ever. Getting across the idea of the Geth and what they could be. I kind of hinted at this in the previous game, in my previous rumination. But the idea here is that even though each individual Geth program is advanced enough to think... I would argue it's not fully sentient and sapient. However, a network of many which have sufficient experience and sufficient external stimuli can eventually become fully sentient and sapient, can effectively merge into one entity. Hence Legion, right at the end there. Very powerful stuff, and I love it. God, I love it. Oh, why, what the hell is wrong with this game? <laughs> you know? It's okay, because the next mission after that is Thessia, which is just... The one after that is Horizon. This is a fun one. See, the entire game, ever since you hit Citadel, people have been talking about this place called Sanctuary. And the point is, it's a place where you can go to get away from the war. It's, it's a place that's just designed to be a refugee center. So, a lot of people, as you might imagine, in fear or in desperation or in pain or in panic or whatever else, have been fleeing to Sanctuary. Seeking Sanctuary. It's a trap. You remember how I mentioned the types of evil and how, for me, insidious personal evil is worse than large-scale evil? Sanctuary is disgustingly evil to me. It actually bothers me. Because, in addition to being very personal and very insidious, it's also... I don't know, there's something... A safe haven should be a safe haven. It shouldn't be a trap. I know that sounds so stupid to say that, but I fundamentally believe that. There should be no such thing as, come on here, you'll be safe. Oh, just kidding. That's horrible. That's the worst kind of betrayal, in my opinion. Especially as you're doing it to a total stranger. Which I know sounds weird, but I mean it. Sanctuary pisses me off. I would have based Delta Zero that entire base if it allowed me to. But instead, I just have to satisfy myself with killing the ever-living crap out of Miranda's father. I haven't talked about Miranda. But depending on how things go in the second game, she can have a rather satisfying and surprisingly lengthy arc in the background. In fact, several of the characters can. Thane is another good example here, who does pass away in this game. Um, Miranda has been reaching out to you because she's been doing her own independent studies of trying to figure out what the hell's going on. She's the one who clues you into the sanctuary situation, which is being run by her father. And, you know, you can bring her in and kill him and save her and save the, save the other daughter and stop the experiments. Because what they were doing here was they were experimenting on people as a way to try and control Reaper Tech to try and make it work for them. <laughs> 
Now, as has been made very, very clear, the control thing never would have worked because control requires to be outside of the system to control it, which makes sense. If you are in a video game, you can't control the video game you're in. I know that's a weird analogy, but my point is I can control a video game because I'm outside the video game. Make sense? This is something that's brought up in the ending, which I suppose we're at now, aren't we? So then we go back to Earth, and it's dumb. It's a series of really boring missions against bog-standard generic ruins. You ever notice lots of games in the last 20 years have, like, the bog-standard ruined look? Even games you wouldn't think, like Devil May Cry 5 has ruins. Just everything does the ruins thing. Wolfenstein 2 did ruins. Everything does ruins. It's like one of the default templates for a stage to be in. Anyway, so you go through ruins, and you fight a bunch of encounters which aren't particularly interesting... There's nothing funny about them. And then you find another destroyer. It's like, hey, oh, that's not really a fun fight, too. It's also the last boss. <laughs> Actually, the destroyer itself isn't really the last boss. It, the last boss is holding your ground against a bunch of Reaper troops, which, as I've already mentioned, don't really make sense, and the destroyer. That's, that's the last boss. After that you go into a pseudo-interactive cutscene where you're either indoctrinated or the writers decided to get frickin' high. And you go up to the Citadel because the Citadel's here. By the way, the Citadel was the catalyst. All along, the Citadel was the final piece we needed for the deus ex machina, which I've tried not to talk about, but here we are. We're at the ending. I have to talk about how dumb this all is. And we go up, and there's Anderson, who's being controlled by the elusive man who's being controlled. I'm sensing a trend here. And we can, there's actually multiple ways to talk down the elusive man, which I actually like. That's kind of cool. It's probably the only good spot in the entire ending. In fact, in the entire finale. From the moment you go to Earth, it's just crap, 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 crap. Cool scene with the elusive man. Crap, 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 crap. So he shoots himself. Then things get weird. Then we go up into what looks like space, and we get a nice view of the space battle going on. And uh, we talk to the Star Child. This is officially, at the moment, the game completely jumps the shark. You remember how I mentioned that Mass Effect was very high on the, heart, the, the Moe's science scale? Four, actually. I would argue two is probably 3.5 to, to three. This is basically jumping it all the way down to one, maybe two. And that's part of the problem. So let's really dissect this. Let's really dig into this. Problem one. In a series that has been all about you know, believable, grounded interactions in a well-built, massively fleshed-out world, galaxy, we suddenly basically jump into magic land and high-concept stuff. Okay, that doesn't fit here. Problem one. Problem two is the fact that they decide to have the kid take the exact same model, with a little bit of a different texture, as the damn kid who died in the beginning. Get it? Problem three. The Reapers, as described in every way, contradict the way they are now described by the Star Child. The Star Child explains them as being, uh, oh yeah, it was, uh, what we decided was, uh, we were AIs who were trying to make it so that organics were cool, and the, so that organics and, and AI could coexist, but we realized that wouldn't happen, so we killed all the organics, so that way the AIs can co... It also 
moving on to my next problem with it, makes the entire franchise retroactively all about the AI singularity and technological sentience and sapience. It makes the whole thing about that. Now this is interesting, because it also states the point very clearly and firmly that there is no actual coexistence. No, seriously, thanks to the nature of this ending, there is no coexistence. It is versus unless you, ins unless you make everything the same, establish dictatorial order, or wipe out one side or the other. Those are the only options. So, um, so that whole, you know, bonding together thing, you know, Joker and Edie, no, no, that was wrong. This brings me to my next point. Shepard, individually, by herself, decides the fate of the entire galaxy. That kind of bothers me. I, I know that there's only so much they could do at this point, but given that the entire series has been about the team, and about cooperation and coordination, unification despite differences, one human decides the fate of the galaxy. That leads me to my next point. The amount of things you have access to for the ending, which options you have, is dependent on a few factors. No, no that's a lie. It's only dependent on your war score. Nothing else. Your choices? Nope. Anything you did with all the characters? Nope. Paragon or Renegade? Nope. Just the war score. I didn't really talk about the war score. That's because the war score is dumb and awful and stupid and terrible and I hate it. Put simply, certain missions and quests will gain you some war score or make you lose war score. And the only thing the war score matters for is this ending. It's a terrible way of implementing. You know what this is? This is a lazy way of implementing this. Because it means they only have to track one variable to decide the ending. And there's only three endings, which are almost identical to each other. So that's cool, too. If you ever, if, if you ever feel like it, if, on the off chance you haven't seen it, look up sometime on YouTube. A Mass Effect 3 ending comparisons. Like, contrasting each of them to each other. Because... The original Control, Destroy, and Synthesis endings are nigh identical to each other, and that's part of the problem. But I'm, I suppose that's the next problem, even though that's later. Let's rewind. <clears throat> so then you choose your choice, right? And the, the game also portrays it so that Control, the thing that the elusive man was trying to do, and was proven to not work, is the good option. Now, I know that sounds like a strange statement, but seriously, it's, it's the big blue-white light. The whole game has portrayed Paragon as good or leaning towards positivity, and that's the control option. The, the renegade option is destroy, also known as the only one of the original three endings, which is barely tolerable. Then there's synthesis, which is green. Now, you might be thinking, what the hell does green re represent? Well, funnily enough, green actually usually represents the Protheans. Or the Borg, which is an apt comparison, because green is truly horrifying. So let's actually talk about these endings, because all three of them suck. So first of all, we send out a giant beam of color-coded ending, and that goes to all of the relays, which then destroys the relays for no reason. This destruction of the relay lets out an absolutely gargantuan blast of energy. And when I say gargantuan, I'm talking on a galactic scale. The entire galaxy is effectively hit by these energy waves. If that doesn't really get it across, let me remind you that if you were to put the moon and the earth next to each other in the exact orbit that they are, you could actually fit every other planet in between them. Like if you sat them, like, like end to end, if you just put Jupiter, Mars, Earth, not Earth, you know what I mean, Jupiter, 
Saturn, Uranus, you know, all those right there. Pluto, they would all literally physically fit in between the space between Earth and its own moon. Space is huge on a level that most people can't even comprehend. No offense intended. Most people don't even try to comprehend because science fiction usually portrays it as if it's right next door. No, space is huge. That's how huge this destruction is. And it does nothing, no collateral damage somehow, which is, this is just straight up magic. This is literally nonsensical magic at this point. This is confetti. And now, so it's, but it's green confetti, red confetti, or blue confetti. It's very important. They're different. The next reason why these endings are so bad, before I continue the next part, is when the game was coming out, the peop- the peop- there's interviews, and we have records of these interviews, where people were lying through their teeth saying about how much your choices will matter for the ending. There's so many different endings and so many permutations to the endings, and that was all a load of ball. Even with the extended versions, there's still just the four endings. They did have fourth one, so that's something. Next problem with the original endings is it's extremely vague. It doesn't explain anything. It's it's one of those uh, endings. Now, as I've said before, the Mass Effects have never had good endings, so this is just kind of par for the course, but that's still a problem. Then they came out with the extended cuts, which explained the three endings and the fourth ending. Now, I'm going to talk these through. So, Control, it turns out that Shepard becomes an overmind AI, which perfectly controls everything. Uh, yeah, that doesn't sound horrifying to me. It controls the Reapers, I should say. So, Shepard Reapers are now controlling and, and using the Reapers for the greater good, but it's heavily implied that this is kind of a temporary solution, and that at some point, Shepard will basically become the new Star Child. So, that's cool. Destroy is obvious. You know, all the AIs, all the cybernetics are destroyed, and we'll never build them again. Never, except for the next time we build them. <laughs> so that's fun. The synthesis ending is damned horrifying, especially since it's portrayed as the good option. Let me remind you, by the way, that you always get the destroy ending. You have to earn the control ending, and you have to work at it to get the synthesis ending. Now, I point that out because from a gameplay and narrative perspective, it's portrayed as the third option. And the point of a third option is it's the good option. You have Dilemma 1, which is bad, Dilemma 2, which is bad, or the third option, which is good. That's the entire point of the concept of a third option. So the game portrays Synthesis as the third option. Now, that's important because it means the writers, or I guess I should say writer, of the, of the Synthesis ending think of that as the best possible ending. And that is freaking horrifying. The Synthesis ending makes everyone in the galaxy part of the same network. Cybernetic and organic. Everyone is now both cybernetic and organic, and everyone is connected all the time forever. Now, that's already kind of horrifying. It's, it's, it's as if people just decided to embrace the Borg across the board. Aha. It's green, even. But the thing that even makes it worse, by the way, is because when I said everyone, I meant it. We actually physically see husks. You know, people who have been turned into Reaper bots suddenly become aware and sentient and sapient as they're like, oh, gosh. I want you to sit, take a moment and think about the various creatures that have been crafted by the Reapers in this, and think about some of them suddenly becoming sentient and sapient and aware. Just process that for a minute. Then there's the fourth ending. The fourth ending pisses me off. 
So what it is, is it's, you, you shoot them. You say, screw you. You refuse to choose. We all die. However, the ending then portrays that because of Liara's work, and because of all that we did across the games, all of this information and knowledge passes forward to the next cycle. What this means is the next cycle has all of our information and data and knowledge about our threat and is able to fight and defeat them conventionally, which is awesome. It shows that our sacrifice is not in vain because it does mean the final defeat of the Reapers the right way. And, again, it ties into the big thematic point across all three games. There's only two big thematic points, really. One is the togetherness thing, you know, bonds of unity, uh, diverse but, but allied, you know, that whole thing, right? And the other one is knowing the enemy. That was a big point in one, it was a big point in two, it comes up briefly in three. So this is a concluding to that point. The next cycle has all of our advantages and none of our disadvantages. So they manage what we couldn't. Awesome, right? Well, joke's on you. The writers actually went out of their way to say, to, to, to shut down. People were like praising it for this fact. And they were like, no, no, that's not what happens. That's not what happens at all. No, what happens is everyone dies and then the next cycle builds the crucible. And then actually picks one of the options that you didn't pick. Now, I'm not phrasing this correctly, but what effectively happens is the writers say that the fourth ending is literally a giant middle finger to the player. That's not a good attitude to have as a writer or a business person or a creator or anything, really. Look at your customer and say, screw you, buddy. That's, don't, don't do that. You'll notice I even aimed away from the camera just in case someone thought I was mentioning, actually referring to an actual viewer right now. No, 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 no. Don't do that. God. I think I talked more about the ending than anything else, which I suppose makes my original point. The endings really were atrociously bad. But the rest of the game was very troubled as well. And that's Mass Effect 3 in a nutshell. Now I know what you're thinking. Lord, you didn't talk about Leviathan or Citadel. No, I didn't. Leviathan's dumb. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. Leviathan's actually pretty well done and competently produced. And it's fun to play through. And it's horrifying. But it also introduces the idea that there's an original race that was the first race that the Reapers are patterned off of. And they're super amazingly powerful. They can destroy a, a sovereign class reaper just like that. And they're on our side now, kind of. You know what that you know what that choice means? It adds to your war score. Yeah, I'm not super fan of the Leviathan DLC. The Citadel DLC, that's something different. It is so something different that it actually doesn't fit with the rest of the game entirely. So I've decided to just kind of not talk about it. At least not here. I do intend to showcase it the next time I stream the game. Ugh. Ugh. I owe a lot to Mass Effect 3, believe it or not. Once upon a time, I sat down, and... Uh, you're gonna laugh at me, but I usually keep processing a fictional work in my head long after I've finished watching or playing it. I, I told you, that's the whole me mentality I walk into the ruminations with, is I finished a work and I want to talk about it, right? And I had been chatting with Pax my good friend, uh, about the Mass Effect 3 situation. And I was just like, you know what? I just need to get my thoughts out there. So I sat down. I'd already been doing the, the vlog at that point a little bit in the, uh, the workroom in, in my office. If you can call that an office. Uh, back in the cube farms. And I was just like, I just want to talk about this. So I just sat and talked about it, and then I walked away. After all, nobody watched that except for like 
you know, 50 Asheron's call players and, like, my friends and family. So I didn't expect anything. As a consequence of that one video I threw together just because I wanted to talk about it, all of a sudden I, I had comments and messages and I, I was being shared on the Bioware forums. And it just kind of spread like wildfire. I have no idea why. To this day, I don't really understand why or how that happened. But that laid the very first brick. Some of you may know that I went through some very bad health issues shortly thereafter that, as well as some pretty traumatic issues, especially with regards to my job. And as a direct result of the fact that a bunch of people decided to watch some idiot in his work fatigues, just casually talking about Mass Effect 3 while at work, as a consequence of those people, I am here right now talking to you. Because I'm not sure I would have survived without that, without the career that has been developed after that. It's been about eight years, I believe, at this point, since the Mass Effect 3 incident. It's had an interesting impact on me and my life. So as much as I just shake my head at the game, I have to always acknowledge that. And more to the point, acknowledge you guys, who, because you are here, I am also here. For whatever that's worth. Here's to another eight, guys.